0: You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We're continuing in the series of Exodus, the epic journey of drawing closer to God. And we're turning to Exodus 7. We've now kind of gone through this genealogy last week. I think that was a really difficult passage, at least to read. So thanks, Pete, for doing that one. Um, So now we're moving on to this encounter where Moses and Aaron are sent to sort of duel with Pharaoh, to begin their show-off, showdown. And so we're going to get into that. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 1 through 13. Exodus 7, verse 1 through 13. This is God's word. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the word of God. Have you ever planned for something? Perhaps a small gathering, small birthday party with friends, or as big as a wedding or an outing, maybe something more long-term, planning like career transitions or planning for a move. We've all had plans when we were younger, for sure, dreams and visions of how our lives will unfold, the cool jobs you'll have where you absolutely love every single thing that you're doing, and the guy or girl you like, you'll eventually end up marrying and have the perfect life with. That plan, that perfect family, or the perfect house or the perfect car, All of it. You want to get something done in life, you make a plan, and then you go out there and get it done, right? And I don't know about all of you guys, but everything I've ever planned, especially in the past year or so, has just been perfect, exactly as I intended. There's been no clearer, no better picture than this past year to show us that there's actually so many things beyond our control on a day-to-day basis that affect our lives, and yet we have this urge, we have this desire to control, to make sure that things go according to our plan. We want and need control, control over our body, whether that's getting yourself to wake up early in the morning to get yourself to a workout, or to have mastery over your motor skills so that you can get that golf swing just right so it doesn't hook or slice. We wanna control our circumstances, perhaps to live in a good neighborhood, to be in a good house with a good stable job, to remove any difficult circumstances, to overcome any difficult circumstances, to have the resources to overcome challenges. We want control over people, for them to do as we would like for them to do, to be good people, for your kids perhaps to listen when you speak, Um, for your coworkers to do the things that you need them to do, or your employees. To some level, to some varying degree for all of us, we want and need control in some facet of our lives. We can do what we can do to feel a sense of control, a sense of mastery over a portion of our lives. And on some level, we want control. We need this control because we recognize our lack of control in other areas of our lives. And maybe that's a little pop psychology, but it's nice to have something where you can say, this is my realm. This I have perfect control over and I got this. Even though everything else is going crazy, I got this thing. But sometimes we want control in life for a purpose. Perhaps for a moral good, to be good people, to do good things, to be seen as a good person, to be known as this good person, so that we want to be able to control ourselves and our circumstances to appear good or be good. And sometimes it's personal good. We want a comfortable and protected life. We don't want any discomfort or any inconveniences in life, and so we control what we can to achieve that level of comfort, to provide that for our families and our homes. And sometimes we want to control things so that we have societal good, relational good. We want better standing before others. We want to be able to relate well with others and we want to make an impact on the world, right? To leave behind some sort of legacy or memory. We have many goals that we hope to achieve of varying levels of importance when we seek control over our lives and its various circumstances. But what the Bible tells us about control this morning through our text is this. God is, at all times, absolutely in control over everything. From the finest detail to the most unimaginable of circumstances, God's hand never ceases to lose his grip on the world. We only have control to the extent that God wills it. And that can be offensive. We only have control to the extent that God wills it. Now, we do have free will because God didn't make us to be robots, but the Westminster Confession of Faith is helpful in giving us the understanding that our free will has been tainted by sin and that we are constantly inclined towards evil in our bondage to sin. And so the, the only thing that sets us free is the work of Christ. The work of Christ sets us free from this bondage and only the full restoration of God's kingdom will restore our inclination to good. And so that means we do have free will, but we tend to always prone to wander from God, and we tend to choose evil. We tend to choose sinfulness, but we recognize that in, in the good and in the bad, God is always in control, and we rest in the fact that God works together all things for our good and for his glory, and what a vivid picture of his glory we get to see in the book of Exodus and in this text as we see God's hand bring about his ultimate plans. We see the movement of God's hand in this narrative bringing about three goals that I want to look at that he has for the Egyptians, for the Israelites, and for, even for our hearts this morning. And those three goals are judgment, rescue, and glory. First, God has plans for judgment. We find our text as Moses and Aaron have confronted Pharaoh and have been turned away once already, a few chapters ago, right? And we had this break into action in chapter 6 where we see God lay out the backdrop of the powerful work that he's about to do in Egypt. And so he kind of sets it up. He kind of talks about his faithfulness to generations and generations of uh, the Israelites. And then here comes some of the action here. So now God is sending Moses and Aaron in once again to Pharaoh to challenge him. And he tells them that he will bring about his judgment upon Egypt. God makes this very apparent that this is one of the primary goals for sending Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. You're going to say all that I tell you and you're going to say it to Pharaoh and then I'm going to harden his heart and then he won't listen to you. Then, then, I'm going to save my people by bringing my judgment to Egypt. When we see God promise judgment, we have to understand God's character in a fuller sense. Because a lot of the times we look at the Old Testament, we see a God unleashing judgment, and we picture this Old Testament God that's just bloodthirsty and out to tear down everyone but the Israelites. No, but here we remember the fullness of God's character. We step back and we remember that God is good. We remember that God is faithful to his promises, that God is just, and that God is steadfast in love to those who love him and obey his commands. This God has heard the groaning of the Israelites in slavery for the past 400 years. This God has seen himself the injustices Of the Egyptian rulers. He's seen the people whipped, beaten, mocked, and made to work day in and day out. This God has seen the infants ripped from their mother's arms and put to death in the name of Pharaoh. This God has seen and heard Pharaoh himself directly counter God and say, Who is the Lord? Why should I care what this Lord has to say? God has seen all of this injustice and rebellion and all of the pain that exists in the land of Egypt. God's judgment, therefore, is never just about his anger in the human sense that we might understand it or express it. God's judgment is always tied to his expression of his goodness, his faithfulness to his covenant and justice. God has seen all of the pain of his covenant people. And justice for God means that all injustice is met with his judgment. We see in Romans, the Apostle Paul, many years later, also come to understand this about God's God's justice. And he wrote in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. In other words, anything that is To what God has commanded is enough grounds for punishment, which is death. All sinners, all people, are subject to sin and therefore death. Justice, God's justice, purely for justice sake, would be for God to judge everyone to death as it stands. I'm certain that the Israelites, even them, over their 400 years in slavery and captivity, were not without sin, were not without uh, wrongdoing. And they were, they were probably just as guilty before God as the Egyptians and all of their injustices. And so why does God then single out just Israel? Well, God tells us exactly why, as we see later in the scriptures in Deuteronomy. He says that it's not because you were more in number. It's not because you were great. It's not because you were amazing in this, this accomplished nation. You, God set you apart for his, to be his treasure possession. He set his love upon you. And in verse 8 of this text, it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's not because you're great in any way, Israel. It's purely because God loves you and he is committed to his own covenant with your people, passed down from Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and now to Moses and Aaron and all of the people of this generation. And so we see the importance of why we looked at the genealogy, why we looked at the past of the Israelites, because God is committing himself to be faithful to his promises to them. God is faithful to keep his promises as he initiates with the Egyptians and the Israelites to bring about his judgment and to restore his people to be freed from slavery, and to once again be his people. And so God is bringing about judgment and moving his hand towards Egypt in order to accomplish the second goal, which is that God moves to rescue his people. He rescues his people. And perhaps there's no clearer picture of God's rescue in the entire Old Testament than the Exodus story. This is the single most significant rescue story that even the New Testament writers and early church fathers pointed to prior to the prior to the cross of Christ. And so before Jesus, this is the most significant picture of rescue that we have. And here God is fixated on rescuing his people out of slavery. And over the last few chapters of Exodus, he's made it abundantly clear to Moses, I am the Lord and I will rescue the Israelites." and I will make them my people, and I will be their God. God is going to do it. And this portion of our text and much of the text throughout Exodus continues to refer to God by this intimate name that he himself has revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3. I am who I am. We see this each time when we see the word LORD written in all caps, Um, small capital letters in the English Bibles. And this is where the Hebrew refers to God as Yahweh, this intimate name to signify the covenant relationship, the covenant lordship that he shares and he has over the Israelites. And to me, this use of this covenantal name throughout the Exodus story signifies God carrying out his covenant promises and claiming his role as God to his own covenant people. This rescue isn't just a Superman-type hero swooping in to save the day for some strangers. These aren't distant strangers. He has this intimate bond and relationship that's been interrupted, and God is actively working, pursuing the people in order to restore that relationship just as it was before. You know, Keri and I don't have kids yet, and we hope to in the future, and I can maybe imagine what it'd be like, but I don't quite have that instinct, that, that parental instinct to jump in to def- defend your own child. I'm sure I have some sort of defensive instinct so your kids are safe with me at Magnify. But, <laughs> but I don't have that parental sort of nerve, right? And this example came to mind for me because I don't have kids and um, it's Liam Neeson from the movie Taken. His daughter's kidnapped and he's got... No money, but a special set of skills. And he's trained. He's this trained assassin or some sort of super secret agent that was his former life. And he uses everything in his arsenal to get his daughter back. He pursues his daughter to the end. A Pretty bloody movie, but he goes through some ex- pretty extreme measures to rescue his daughter. And I just picture that sort of, maybe not the way that he went about it, but it's that sort of fervent, My my child's life is on the line sort of passion that God exhibits for Israel, his covenant people. It's this deep, intimate relationship that he shares. And that's that's the motivation behind the rescue. This relationship that he's established by his covenant promises, he sought to see it through, to protect it, to preserve it, and to restore it back to what it once was, what it was meant to be. The good news is that God's pursuit of his people, his covenant people, has not changed at all. And we're reminded of this each week. God initiates with us. God initiates with his people. We see that here as Moses and Aaron are sent to face off with Pharaoh, that, and he plans to destroy, display his wonders and signs, and to lay his hand of judgment upon Egypt and his hand of rescue upon Israel. And we continue to experience God's initiation with us as we're reminded of stories such as this. We're reminded of a living God who continues to be faithful to his promises. We're reminded of the gift of the Holy Spirit who is with us even now to remind us that the gospel story of grace is the one true story of God and of this world God pursues his people God rescues his people because he's the only one that's able to because he's the only one who is in absolute control at all times But as we read this narrative as in, as we even go further in the coming weeks of this narrative in Exodus as we set the scene for the 10 plagues that are about to befall the Egyptians, I wondered why is God doing it this way? This doesn't exactly seem like a God who is actually in control. If God, the almighty creator who we've established is always in control and he wants to rescue his people, why doesn't he just stab his finger? Why is he going about it this way? Why is he stooping down to the level of Pharaoh to go head-to-head with him, to duel with him? Why does he waste his time dealing with this stubbornly hard-hearted person like Pharaoh when he can just take his people and go as he pleases, if he's this God fully in control? I mean, can you imagine what Moses and Aaron are thinking, even as they're being obedient, even as they're following everything that God has said? How in the world is this silly snake battle, this snake competition going to free our people and rescue us out of this land? How are we getting out? And perhaps the prophet Isaiah captured it best when God spoke through him and said, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. And as the heavens are higher than the earth, my ways and my thoughts are higher than your ways and your thoughts. Indeed, God's plans are actually never so one-dimensional as we might plan. God is never reactionary. He's not responding to Pharaoh and kind of going back and forth with him to see what Pharaoh will do. He never has to be. He's constantly in control. We've established that. And in every circumstance, in any circumstance, God is fully in control, no matter how it may appear to us. And so God intentionally comes down, condescends to Pharaoh's level, eye to eye, as you would speak to a child, and he deals with Pharaoh accordingly, not as a reaction to what Pharaoh is doing, not because he's being stubborn and God's trying to coerce him and he's trying to persuade him to let his people go, but because he wants to intentionally use this hard-hearted Pharaoh to make himself known. God is always foremost concerned with his own glory and God is in control in any and every circumstance. In his total control, he acts to fulfill his plans. God acts to bring about his judgment so that he would bring about his justice. God acts to rescue his people, to remain true and faithful to his covenant promises, and to make for himself a people and lastly, God acts gloriously as he's always foremost concerned with his glory. Why does God stoop down to this level? Why does he go eye to eye with Pharaoh? What's happening here with the snake battle? What's the purpose? Well, for one, it's a direct subversion of Pharaoh. It's an attack on his authority. It's an attack on his power. God is putting him in his place as creation in the face of the creator. You see, God meant what he said when he says in verse 5 of our text, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. He meant to show all of Egypt who he is, not just so that his people would be freed, but that the Egyptians would also know him, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, and now of Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. The word Pharaoh, we kind of use it regularly throughout the Exodus narrative. It meant great house. It's a designated title. It's a designation for the king of Egypt, who was a symbol of of the ruler and protector of this great house. And Pharaoh held a tremendous, tremendous amount of power in this kingdom. Pharaoh not only ruled as king over people with judicial and legislative and executive and whatever other kind of governmental power you can ask for, he had all of it. But on top of all of his duties as a king, as an earthly king, Pharaoh acted also as the intermediary between the gods of Egypt and the people. And so he was the central figure who was to be seen as a god to the people. Pharaohs were, in um, hieroglyphics, pharaohs were always depicted with a scepter or a staff um, as a sign, and the staff held a sign of absolute authority. Pharaohs always wore a crown of sorts, a headdress, that always had a symbol of an upright cobra, a serpent, a symbol of his sovereignty, his royalty, his deity, and divine authority. These were traditions that were passed down for hundreds and maybe thousands of years. I think these details aren't really necessary to see God's power at work here, but it would likely be common knowledge to people back in the day living in Egypt um, and definitely among the Egyptians. Look back to verse 1 of our text. God says to Moses, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. I'm making you God to Pharaoh. So much so that Moses, who is to be this God figure before Pharaoh, now has an intermediary in Aaron. Your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. He doesn't even have to speak. He has a mouthpiece It's this royal sort of presentation before Pharaoh, announcing that God is here and he is speaking to you. This Pharaoh has probably been groomed all of his life to take this throne because it's passed down to him. And he's been hyped up all of his life. He's been babied and told that you're going to be a God. You're going to be God to these people. Everything that you tell them, they're going to do. Everything that you want, it's going to happen exactly as you want. Moses being, in, being raised in the palace probably recognized the gravity and the significance of this. And God is turning Pharaoh and all of Egypt's world upside down by revealing himself to be the one true God. Jumping down to verse 9, God commands Moses to prove himself to Pharaoh, to tell Aaron to throw down his staff, and that it will turn into a snake. I read this as a direct challenge of power to Pharaoh. Aaron is to take this staff, a symbol of power and authority for Pharaoh, and he's to toss it like a simple toy for it to turn into yet another symbol of power and authority and divinity and royalty for the Egyptians. It's almost as if God is mocking the power that Pharaoh has built up for himself And the traditions and beliefs that the Egyptians have built up in this man, God, person. Jump down to verse 11. As a staff turns into a serpent, Pharaoh responds. Pharaoh is dueling with God now, notably not with his own staff or his own magic or power, but by summoning his magicians to copy what Moses and Aaron had done, hopefully. And we had a movie night for Magnify uh, last month with the kids and we watched Prince of Egypt, and I kind of enjoyed their depiction of this scene, the snake battle. They showed these magicians uh, using smoke and mirrors and lights from the sun and um, sleight-of-hand tricks in order to produce the same results as Moses and Aaron. And, you know, that may just as well be what actually happened. We don't know the specifics of what it means by the magicians. But what we do know is that somehow they produced snakes, and that their staff serpents were swallowed up by Aaron's staff-turned-serpent. The ultimate symbol for divine authority and sovereignty over the Egyptians, swallowed up by the staff of God. Magic, however real it may have been, pales in comparison to the real power of God that he's displaying just a glimpse of his power. Why does God go through all of this trouble? Why does he stoop down to this level? Because his goal isn't to just judge these Egyptians. His goal isn't just to rescue his people. It's so that the Egyptians, the Israelites, and even us here would know that Yahweh, the great I am, This covenantal God is the Lord. Pastor John Piper reflects on God's providence in dealing with Pharaoh, and he writes this. God did not send Moses to Egypt wondering how many plagues it would take to bring Pharaoh to his knees. The plan from the beginning was to multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. God hardens Pharaoh so that he may multiply his wonders. He multiplies his wonders to put Pharaoh in his place. Show the Egyptians that he is the absolute Lord. Establish himself as the center of Israel's worship for generations and make a name for himself in all the earth. These are kind of points that I've touched on, but do you see the intricate details woven into the fabric of his story that shows us the beautiful colors of God's plan. God is in absolute, total control, controlling every circumstance, every fine detail to make his name known. His hands, steady and firm, gripping the hearts of his people, powerful, powerful enough to judge and cleanse And defeat sin, faithful to rescue and restore his people, and gracious enough to reveal himself to the repentant and the rebellious alike. Our desire for control, looking at God's control, looking at his complete power and complete control over everything, our desire for control isn't inherently bad. It's built into our identity. It's who we are as image bearers of the creator God. We have this built-in desire to want to control, to create, to craft something beautiful out of our imagination and intelligence. That's why so many craft breweries and craft pizza places and whatever crafting exists. Our obsession of tweaking and controlling every detail, it's not inherently bad But it becomes a wicked thing when we claim it for ourselves and we look to manipulate our lives and others around us not aligned with God's purposes and we control to seek our own glory or our own comfort. We will always, always forever fall short when we seek control over seeking God regardless of how pure our intentions may be, because our hearts are inclined towards evil, our control will always take from God's glory. And when we do feel a sense of control over our lives, over some circumstance of our lives, we have to be careful to direct it unto God's glory and not our own. Just as God condescends to deal with Pharaoh, to deal with Egypt, To handle the rescue of Israelites in this way, God also condescends to deal with us in the same sort of judgment, same sort of rescue, and revelation of his glory with us. Church, God sees and hears our groaning. Might not be verbal groaning all the time, but we live in captivity to sin and death in this world, in constant battle, with the effects of sin in every area of our lives, including our own hearts. And he sees his people that have been separated from his presence and his glory, and he longs to see them restored. God is so faithful to his promises that he planned for his son. Before all of time, he planned for his son, Jesus, to take on flesh. He planned for him to become a man to take on the burdens, the penalty of sin. And God planned for Jesus to die exactly as he commanded. Jesus rose from the grave exactly as God had planned. Jesus promises us that there will be never a time again when he is separated from his people, that he will be with us forever as he leaves us with the gift of his spirit and he promises his return to eternally establish his new kingdom. God poured out all of his ultimate judgment, the ultimate punishment on his own son so that those who never knew, so that he who never knew sin would become sin and those that were dead in our sins, in our trespasses might be made alive again. God rescued us from the bondage of sin and death so that we're no longer bound to it, but free to live in the kingdom of God by clinging not to our control, not to our righteousness, but to the righteousness and the work of Christ. God turns his glorious face in the person and work of Jesus towards his people so that we would know that he is God, so that we would know the great I am, and so that we would be his people. God wields his absolute control so that, we could, so that we could see his judgment, so that we could see his salvation, and that we could see and experience and taste his glory. I can only imagine the arenas of life that all of us are battling in, where we feel like we need to have better control over but can't, where we feel utterly powerless to change our circumstances, to change the course of our life. And going through this text with you, I don't know that God will make things go the way you'd want it to. I don't know that God has any plans to fix in this life anything of our ailments today. But what the text shows us, what our scripture shows us today, what God is speaking out today, what we do know is that God is fully in control of every and any circumstance. I do know that God is working together all things. The most heart-hardening, heartbreaking downfalls and tragedies in the most joyous and praiseworthy occasions and celebrations and all these things and everything in between. God is working together for the good of his people. And as we see here, ultimately for his glory, that he would be known, that you would know him. So I invite you to trust in the person and work of Jesus who wholly surrendered control over his own life committing fully to the Father's hand, and now is triumphant over sin and death and is extending his grace to us today. Would you trust in him today? Would you trust in God's hand over our hearts today?